Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and a coffee while we amble through this week's tech news. We cover a Microsoft breach postmortem, a new Cisco Nutanix partnership, security acquisitions, space networking, and more. We don't have an ad or a tech bite today, but I do want to mention AutoCon Zero. This is a new independent conference dedicated to network automation. It's taking place November 13th and 14th in Denver, Colorado. If you're looking to learn about network automation or get a project off the ground, you just want to talk to other engineers and vendors who are grappling with automation, the conference is a good place to be. And the Packet Pushers are media partners, so I will be there along with Ethan Banks if that makes it even more interesting or less interesting. I don't know. But you can get details and sign up uh, and see all the speakers at networkautomation.forum. That's networkautomation.forum for Autocon Zero taking place November 13th and 14th. We hope to see you there. Small conference, probably not a COVID super spreader event, right? <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's <laughs> it's small. It's the first time uh, event. It, that's why yeah. it's uh, labeled zero. Uh, so yeah, we're expecting, we'll call it intimate. We'll call it an intimate event. <laughs> Face-to-face almost. Yes, personable, very personable. (laughs) Yes, so uh, check it out. Last week, uh, we had talked about a 70-kilowatt rack uh, being a lot of power for one rack, but we got an FU or a follow-up about a rack that blows that number away. Yeah, James Harrington wrote in, he went, 70 kilowatts rack, try 400 kilowatts per rack. Now, his email, and I'll read it verbatim because he does a great job of this. Now, granted, a rack is roughly 48 inches by 48 inches wide, but that's a mind-blowing amount of power. Everything in the rack is water-cooled down to the nick chipsets and the dim, and apparently it makes the room eerily quiet for a data center. The only thing making noise is a sand with fans over in the corner. I listened to a talk from someone who helped build the thing. They had to get power feeds from two independent substations. The staff offices surrounding the DC were turned into utility rooms to handle the queuing pumps and the power distribution. And the racks were so heavy, they could only put three onto a semi-trailer before it hit its weight capacity, which apparently made the logistics fund trying to receive 74 of the things. And so he's given us some links to the, it's a government supercomputer, of course. So that provoked me a little bit, Drew, because, you know, if you're going to call me out, I'm going to go and do some more research. Turns out that 100 kilowatts of rack is not unusual. I didn't know this. So there's another company in Norway, which is just being built now. There's something called the AQ Compute OSL1, and they're building 100 kilowatts per rack. So you can now go and find a standard rack. It's obviously liquid cooled. Norway being Norway, it claims that everything there is green energy. So the entire data center, it's a new build. The site actually has five megawatts of power now, 40 megawatts available, which is smallish by some standards, but still a very good size facility. So it turns out that things that I'm surprised about just shows how easy it is to fall out of touch. So 100 kilowatts per rack, 400 kilowatts per rack, you know, there you go. I assume since it's Norway, if they want to cool it, they can just leave the windows open. You don't just let the weather in because of <laughs> oh, dust no. and, you know, but still, yeah, yes. I get your point. Yeah. Yes. I imagine that being in Norway, you've got the advantage of using the atmosphere as a heat exchanger potentially. So Potentially, yes. All right. Well, we love uh, follow-up, corrections, comments, whatever. If you've got any from a previous episode or this episode, or you just want to say hi, you can reach us at packetpushers.net slash FU. And thanks, James, for writing. And we, we love the details. We'll get into the news. First, Microsoft has released a detailed postmortem describing how attackers associated with China were able to get access to emails of U.S. government employees. That attack was revealed back in July of this year, and now Microsoft has a breakdown of how it happened. Uh, essentially, it was a series of unfortunate events that led to the exposure of a signing key that subsequently allowed the attackers to compromise government email systems that were using Outlook Web Access in Exchange Online and Outlook.com, and I'll walk through it very briefly. Uh, first, the attackers were able to forge access tokens using a Microsoft account consumer key, and now we know how the attackers got that key 
turns out that back in April of 2021, the consumer signing key system crashed and a snapshot of that crashed process included the signing key that wasn't supposed to happen. Then the snapshot was moved from an isolated production network to a corporate debugging network, which was connected to the internet. An attacker was able to compromise a Microsoft engineer's account, got access to that snapshot and found the key. Uh, there were several steps along the way that should have detected that the key was in the crash dump or the snapshot. It was missed on each step. Microsoft says it has corrected those issues, but it hasn't said how. So there's two ways to look at this. One way is to look at this and say, this was a very complicated, sophisticated, and persistent. So somebody must have spent a lot of time. They compromised a Microsoft engineer's account, then started sifting through all of the data in that person's account, and then found this key. Then they were able to work out what the key was for. And then they went on to work out different ways that they could exploit access to this key and to be able to turn it into something useful. And in the end of the day, they were actually accessing emails of high security US government employees at will for months, by the way, not just for a day or two or an hour or two. The suggestion is that it was there for months. So the general suggestion is that this was a nation state attacker, probably, you know, the usual type, you know, rather than a cast dispersions, but certainly a nation state attacker was able to get access to a significant amount. Now, keep in mind that Azure is, of course, a hosting facility for a wide range of governments. So maybe a lot of other governments got compromised as well, but not everybody knows and not everybody's speaking up here. So one way to look at this is to say, this was a very sophisticated hack and, you know, Microsoft has found it and fixed it. And, you know, how can you defend against this sort of complicated attack? My point would be, is that this is an indication of just how poor Microsoft's testing and quality control is. These are structural flaws. This isn't just one thing went wrong. This is a sequence of weaknesses in their entire system, which I think demonstrates how bad Microsoft is on quality control testing and security assurance inside the organization. Is that unreasonable? Reading the postmortem, they note each step along the way where the key should have been caught and it wasn't. So yes, you could say this is uh, an indication that Microsoft's processes, which they had in place, failed. So yeah, that's not great. But again, I also feel like, as you mentioned, this was somebody who was sitting there for a very long time, had a lot of resources to be able to dig out this key that multiple other systems and probably multiple other engineers missed. Well, hang on, hang on. The crash dumps which redacts sensitive information, didn't. It should not include the signing key. Now, okay, so the crash jump failed because Microsoft products crash all the time. (laughs) Um, And in this particular case, a failure of the crash system failed, right? So a bug on a bug, Yep. right? So Microsoft's at fault there, right? The key materials present in the crash dump was not detected by our systems, but key should never be anywhere that it's not. And they should have had tools searching for the key, but the ones that they had didn't detect this key. That's the third one. A part of the pre-existing library of documentation and helper APIs, Microsoft provided an API to help validate the signature cryptographically, but did not update these libraries to perform the scope validation. So they failed again, a fourth time, right? And then they said, our credential scanning messages did not detect its present, this issue. So they've gone public with five sequential failures that led to this problem. That is a, a sign to me of an organization in crisis. They have consistently and in-depth failed. If it was just one failure, you would say, okay, fine, a single mistake, maybe not so bad, nation-state attacker. But here's the thing. Microsoft and the other off-prem clouds are targets of nation-state attackers. They're such a desirable attack yep. vector, right? Because everything is there. Microsoft can't just glibly say, oh, well, you know, good on you right? Really well done. Really top work. I don't accept that as an acceptable excuse. They are a target. 
you know, the claims of the clouds were that they were going to be more secure because they could hire better people and apply more security than you could. I mean, their log retention policy was so bad that they can't even go back and prove that it happened. There is actually no guarantee that this is actually a viable excuse, right? Because they don't have the logs. The logs have aged out because this happened so long ago. So they don't actually know with 100%. So if you go to Microsoft and get this explanation, they can't tell you. Microsoft is provably unsafe. You know, Azure is provably unsafe, in my opinion. But that's not going to stop anybody. Nobody's going to listen to us. Here's what I will say. Two things. One, it's another example of security asymmetry. We all have to get everything right all the time. Attackers only need to get something right once. uh, So that gives them an advantage. Two, I I was thinking about this, like, is it better to have sort of one large organization handling this? Or do we want government agencies and enterprises all trying to essentially run their own PKIs and handle their own uh, cryptography infrastructure? I think the results in that regard would be worse than somebody like Microsoft, who is in some regards sloppy and made a lot of mistakes here that shouldn't have happened. The blast radius would have been much less. We're talking hundreds of US government agencies, including CIA and FBI and all that sort of stuff, and presumably a large number of other government agencies, right? The the impact is not being clearly discussed. But if you had a lost one, okay, the, the impact would be limited. That's the issue here. I guess what I'm saying is that the risk to me seems higher if we're having multiple government agencies and businesses all trying to run their own secure email infrastructure than the blast radius. You know, you'd have to attack each one individually, but the pickings, I think the low hanging fruit would be a lot more accessible uh, in that scenario. But the blast radius would be less. Per incident, yes, per incident, yes. But I think you'd get more incidents, so. Mm-hmm. But the blast radius would be smaller. You but know? the blast radius would it be smaller. It would be the yes. difference between a hand grenade and a small nuclear weapon going off, right? Yes, people get damaged when hand grenades go off, but you know, not quite the same outcomes. Okay, I guess I will disagree a little bit with that that metaphor. This wasn't a nuclear event. This was, you know, maybe a yeah. an artillery shell versus a hand grenade. I, I know. I believe it to be nuclear. I mean, entire swathes of government data and secret, including secret services, was accessed. How much we don't know because they don't have the logs. Well, here's the other thing: uh, the, these systems, I don't think were on Azure. It was Outlook Web Access and Exchange Online and, and Outlook.com, which. My understanding is these are older Microsoft products, so maybe not getting the full attention from Microsoft that they should. And also maybe we should be asking government agencies, why are you using these older products that may not be as secure? Yeah. I mean, everybody's at fault, but Microsoft's particularly at fault here, I think. It's Microsoft's responsibility. Yeah. That's that's exactly why you hire a service like this, because they should be handling this better. Yep. Agreed. And this demonstrates systemically that the organization is not taking security seriously. It goes all the way across fault after fault after fault after fault. Yeah. Well, we've got the links in the show notes, as always. If you want to go read up on it, I recommend it. It's interesting to, to see that cascading series of faults. But I think we should move on. Cisco and Nutanix have announced a partnership to combine hyper-converged hardware and software from Cisco that can be operated by Nutanix. The offering is going to bundle Cisco UCS servers, Cisco ACI for networking and security, and Cisco management, meaning UCS manager and intersight, with the Nutanix cloud platform software. The Nutanix cloud platform software uh, offers unified operations for applications and data that are running uh, on-premises at the edge locations and in public clouds. This is interesting, right? Because we've seen such a change in the hyper-converged infrastructure industry over the last two years. HPE obviously shook it up with GreenLake. We've seen Dell follow what HPE is doing once it was clear that GreenLake was doing something. So Dell has been pushing their Apex, which is a similar sort of thing. Dell's Apex is still early days and they're still building it up. I would probably, from what I've heard and from speaking with people, it might be something that you might want to wait for a while for Dell to finish building out the uh, engineering and sales organization behind that because it's uh, probably a bit early to jump. But HP GreenLake has been quite successful, I think. And Cisco's got to be looking at that and going like, okay, so customers are serious about buying private clouds on subscription. We need to be doing something like that. 
VMware is going to Broadcom. We no longer have a preferential position with VMware now that they're outside of Dell. What do we do? Where do we go? So I, I would have thought that Cisco would have just gone and bought Nutanix. Um, Nutanix isn't a particularly big company. It's only got a market cap of seven, seven point five billion. Mm-hmm. But Cisco would have to pony up, give say ten billion to be able to buy that off the shelf, if you like, right? Which is a lot, even for Cisco. But not really. I mean, Cisco hasn't made a major acquisition in five, maybe seven years. And the last acquisition they made was small. You know, five billion for Thousand Eyes, of course, was a substantial acquisition. There's a few others, uh, Duo Security, and so forth. But you know, buying Nutanix would mean that they now have a competitive strategy against HPE. And Dell, right, where Dell obviously is using its relationship with VMware to to have a preferential position there. HP's got GreenLake, which is completely separate. Cisco's Hyperflex hasn't got a lot of buzz in the market. I don't think people, it's Insight Workload Manager, which was meant to be a VM uh, orchestration tool. So the idea is that it would be a bit like VMware's in ESX and it would actually place the workloads on-prem and off-prem. That product failed and it has been canned completely. So I think we're seeing Cisco start to face up to the fact that it's a low growth company and investors are starting to get a bit edgy about the the lack of change in the share price over the last 10 years. So I think this is sidling up to Nutanix to think maybe we should buy this company. Yeah, it seems like it's an experiment to see whether this would be good for Cisco. Uh, one, I, I've got a couple of questions. Is is HCI making a comeback? I felt like it was sort of the uh, flavor du jour for a couple of years. I haven't heard much about it. I wonder if uh, hyperconverged infrastructure is getting a second look as organizations kind of reckon with the cost of public cloud. Whether Nutanix is a great buy for Cisco, I don't know. They've been doing okay. Uh, I looked at their fiscal year 2023 results. They had $1.86 billion in revenue, which was up uh, over 2022. So that growth is good. But they are not making a profit. Uh, they lost over $200 million in 2023, although it's better than the 2022 when they lost $400 million. Uh, so <laughs> there's a little bit of progress, but... Well, Nutanix is sitting on a huge pile of debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in an era where debt actually has a value, that is, you know, you have to pay interest on it now. Right. Nutanix must be feeling the pressure to... Uh, now, the bills aren't currently due on that debt, so it's probably not got to move too quickly. But getting a deal with Cisco or maybe exiting to Cisco where Cisco picks up that debt might be something. Maybe Cisco can turn up and buy it cheap instead of buying it for $10 billion, which is a premium to market. They can pick it up at a, at a lower price because the debt load is so high. But equally, you know, when VMware goes to Broadcom, what happens then? Does Cisco want to have some sort of leverage against Broadcom to be able to negotiate a preferential pricing deal? And, you know, they can sort of say, look, we want good deals on selling VMware in, with Hyperflex or we'll go to Nutanix, right? I think the Broadcom thing is the is a key issue here as well. Yeah, well, VMware is the other you know big player in HCI, and they've been kind of frozen in place during the Broadcom acquisition. So maybe this announcement is Cisco taking advantage of VMware's current paralysis while well, it waits for that acquisition to happen. Yeah, well, shout out to the people from VMware. If you're listening, I know that the Broadcom people are inside the organization and rattling around and must be a very difficult time to be in a company while the acquiring people are in evaluating everything and deciding what to keep and what to throw away. The rumors that I've heard suggest that Cisco and Broadcom do have a rocky relationship around networking assets. Cisco's got sort of a love-hate relationship and they sort of feel like Broadcom's been able to gather in the Ethernet market to itself with this with the hyperscalers. And execs aren't pleased that Broadcom has dominated the off-prem cloud network infrastructure market to you know, with its Jerichos and Tridents and Tomahawks. Um, so I think Cisco wants some more leverage on Broadcom, and this is probably a play in that direction. It also gets them back into the I think we'll start seeing some sort of, you know, competitors to GreenLake and uh, Dell Apex where you can buy it on a subscription basis. And I think investors will go for that. But I also suspect that without owning Nutanix, it might well just 
it won't go very far at all because customers don't want to deal with two suppliers. The advantage of Green Lake is that you've got one throat to choke, one hand to shake, you know, one bum to kick, whatever <laughs> metaphor you want to use, you know. So I think that Cisco's got to make a decision here and go for it. We'll put that on the watch list and, and see what happens. Uh, a quick announcement about uh, networking in AWS. The public cloud recently updated its network load balancers to support security groups. AWS says is a much requested feature as it makes it easier to configure security rules and filter traffic to backend applications. I couldn't make sense of this for a while. And then I read the documentation that said this decision affected the number of network load balancers that could be created in an AWS account. And that's the reason. You know, customers seem to want to create large numbers of network load balancers. And then, of course, AWS couldn't sell them to you. So they fixed that pretty quickly. <laughs> that's about the only takeaway i got out of this what about you yeah i think it was there was some uh rule limit on the network load balancer so every time you reach a rule limit you'd have to spin up another network load balancer and i guess eventually you would hit a limit of the number of network load balancers you could spin up in a kubernetes environment so you're sort of there was this artificial scarcity that AWS was creating that, that wasn't working hey, well, customer don't buy my product you've got too much of it already <laughs> right that's that doesn't fly that doesn't right? fly at so, all <laughs> yeah so Arguably, you can probably design better around your network load balancers and how many rules you're using. But if you're quite often, if you're using automation to just spawn rules and there's not a lot of control over it, I suspect that this is much more of an arbitrary thing than a real thing. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, yeah nice to see AWS, you know, making sure that you can buy all of the products all the time. Uh, Checkpoint has announced it's acquiring Atmosec. Uh, this is a SaaS security startup. Uh, the acquisition is an undisclosed amount. Uh, Atmosec scans for and disconnects malicious SaaS applications and can spot misconfigurations in legitimate SaaS apps that might lead to security incidents. Oh, more signs of life from Checkpoint, yes. uh, a company that has been not doing very much. Three weeks ago, they announced the acquisition of Perimeter 81 for SSE Cloud. We talked about it on the show here. Mm -hmm. And this is a much smaller acquisition that, in my view, just adds a missing priest to what Perimeter 81 was doing. SaaS securities. What do you think SaaS, malicious SaaS applications? So what they're saying is that in average, 130 SaaS applications are used by organizations globally, but their research, this is Atmosex research, <laughs> indicates there are approximately 700 additional SaaS applications in use without IT's knowledge. And moreover, within popular SaaS applications like O365 and Slack, for example, hundreds of third-party apps are connected. Like, have you ever been into the Slack channels of of various things and checked out how many times people have added weird and strange apps. Right. That's just what I was thinking. Yes. Now I read this and actually went and looked at our community Slack and people have been installing the <laughs> strangest stuff, honestly. No, it's just like I had to go through and disable them all because why would we be giving them access? To, I don't know. Anyway, so basically this company is making a whitelisting service for SaaS applications. So they're saying there is a list of services here and, you know, if we see these services, people adding applications to your, and we know that to be a malicious one, then we'll deliberately block it. And then what we'll also be able to do is, you know, asset management or software bill materials, whatever you want to call that. And you'll be able to get a list and say, like, give me a list of all the applications that are connected to my Slack instances, or give me a list of all SaaS applications that have connectors in O365, or, you know, put this on the perimeters in my SSE environment and start telling me what SaaS applications are being used so I can go around and stomp on them. Or centralize them, like, you know, aggregate all the billing in and get the benefit of discounts at volume. That is what I think is happening here. So this seems very natural and uh, nice to see the checkpoint isn't dead, although I kind of wish they were. That's my personal opinion, not my professional one. <laughs> okay, glad you separated that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to wrap it up, Atmosec was founded in 2021 in Tel Aviv and had raised uh, $6 million in funding to date. So I'm guessing this was a couch money uh, acquisition for Checkpoint. It's funny how whitelisting has become a thing because this is a whitelisting service. You know, they go around and identify all the SaaS applications and then say, this one's good, this one's bad, this one might be bad. Allow, disallow, yeah. 
Yeah. And this is something that you could do yourself, but why would you? It's much cheaper and much more practical for somebody to go and do it and then sell it as a subscription service to you as part of your application firewall and infrastructure, which is fundamentally what's happening here. It's just interesting that whitelisting was something that everybody hated. And now all of a sudden, because you can centralize it in an off-premise, in a SaaS environment, it's become the way of security. So instead of blacklisting and allowing everything else, so, you know, blocking and permit everything. Now we're doing whitelisting, which is to block everything, but only allow what needs to be allowed via these types of threat intelligence services. In general, I think it's a much more manageable approach. Moving on, uh, Huawei is rolling out new smartphones that boast a seven nanometer chip made by a Chinese chip maker. The announcement of the chip caught the U.S. government officials by surprise as the U.S. has implemented uh, trade restrictions to prevent China from getting access to technology that would allow the development of advanced chips. Uh, Huawei announced the new phone with the chip at the same time. The U.S. Commerce Secretary was in China for a state visit, a move generally regarded as a middle finger to U.S. trade restrictions. Um, I will note that several analysts say that even though Huawei and the chip maker have demonstrated the ability to produce a seven nanometer chip, uh, the lack of access to that advanced uh, lithography machines limits the number of chips that can be produced from each silicon wafer. So for instance, Reuters is saying that uh, yields of 90% are typical with advanced machines, but Huawei's process may only yield 50%, uh, which raises the cost per chip substantially. Yeah, the press coverage really has been quite, I want to say gullible, but actually it's been just really passive sort of, you know, oh, well, we shouldn't be doing this and really not very focused on the details. And you've already highlighted it, which is what's the yield? If you're going to make chips at that sort of capacity, even TSMC will spend six months working on the leading edge of chipsets to be able to get the technology tuned up to a point where you can actually get a successful yield. And every wafer that you imprint the chips on, you don't want to be throwing away 50, 60, 70% of the wafer because the printing and the process wasn't accurate enough. It's just going to be a very expensive chip. Not one of the mainstream media ever took that into account. And... We know that Huawei probably has some of the equipment and some of the skills to do these, but generally it's relied on Western companies to come in and set up the machines and to tune them and to keep them tuned. And increasingly, you know, the the sanctions from the U.S. government has locked them out. But also keep in mind that, you know, China is, of course, the center of manufacturing for companies like Apple for their iPhone, which is you know arguably the best in the world. They've got certain parts of the stack, but have they got all of it? And in the past, they used to buy the chips and the screens from Japan and TSMC would make the ASICs and then, you know, the companies would send them into China to be assembled. So we'll just have to wait and see, you know, keep in mind that there are reasons to believe this because China has spent, I believe it's something in the order of 20 to 30 billion um, investing in chip companies over the last decade. Hasn't been very successful. It's generally believed that the money that they put into that seems to have been wasted or not gotten the results that they would have been looking for. But the Chinese companies did have government support to go and acquire a lot of chip making machinery before the sanctions took effect, some of which are only just coming into effect now. So uh, that's another thing about the articles is they're saying, oh, you know, this, these these sanctions aren't working. Well, the sanctions were announced and then you have to wait you can't disrupt commercial business by saying the sanctions come in today unless you're you know, in a full-on state of war or whatever. So the US sanctions are actually still just coming into effect now by and large. They're announced and then they have some time before they take effect and existing orders have to be worked through and so forth. So yeah, I, I think while we probably is able to do this, the question is, could they do this at, you know, at sufficient yield? And then are they able to do this in some sort of a sustainable way? 
Yeah, so my understanding is the state of the art for lithography machines from ASML, which is a Dutch company that makes them, uh, is extreme ultraviolet or EUV. I guess China has machines from ASML that are DUV, which is a you know a generation or two behind, and they were able to tweak the DUV lithography machines to get the seven nanometer, but again with a significantly lower yield. So it is costing them more per chip and makes their chip manufacturing more expensive. But because they feel China is is essentially being squeezed technologically by U.S. restrictions, they feel like they've got to do this. And so it's, uh, they're saying to the US, yeah, you're trying to shut us down, but we're finding ways around it. And so it's causing a lot of political kerfuffle. Uh, well, I'll say uh, th there was a, a follow-on news story. The Chinese government is forbidding employees of some government agencies from using their iPhones at work, which is widely seen as a response to these trade restrictions. Uh, the announcement caused Apple's share price to drop nearly 3% and sent share prices of other Apple suppliers, including Qualcomm, lower. Uh, and according to Reuters, nearly a fifth of Apple's revenue comes from China. So this kind of the U.S. makes a move, uh, China retaliates and finds ways to take advantage of leverage it has to, to counter the U.S.'s moves. And uh, this is just going to keep rolling. The geopolitical impact of these moves will be felt through our supply chain for the years ahead. You know, part of the reason that we're still seeing a backlog with some vendors is that manufacturing is being moved from, you know, places to other places. Assembly is moving from China to Vietnam or the Philippines or in some cases India. You know, manufacturing of certain components is moving, you know, from Taiwan to Japan or India, you know, and so forth. And I think that's going to flow through into our supply chain. That's why we keep watching it, looking for and examining those issues. And so we're prepared for it. So you can predict with your project what's going on. Okay, two more stories before we wrap. Uh, first, some space networking. Vodafone has announced it plans to test 4G and 5G services in Africa and Europe using satellite connectivity from Project Kuiper. This is a space networking effort headed by Amazon's Jeff Bezos. Uh, the press release says in part, Project Kuiper will connect geographically dispersed cellular antennas back to companies' core telecom networks. This means Vodafone and Vodacom will be able to offer services in more locations without the time and expense of building out fiber-based or fixed wireless links Back to the core networks, uh, testing is expected to begin uh, for this in 2024. However, as the register notes, Project Kuiper has yet to launch any satellites. So <laughs> there's lots of reason to be, whenever Blue Origin and uh, Project Cooper are put together, there's lots of reason to be extremely uh, dubious that there are not some wild claims being put around here. Jeff Bezos, of course, is behind Blue Origin and Kuiper. I, I say Kuiper. I don't know if I'm wrong, but uh, maybe somebody can FU us and let us know. Um, so Blue Origin hasn't been very successful in getting their rockets off the ground. In fact, they've been notably uh, problematic. And at this particular point in time, I would say Blue Origin is not showing much progress towards launching rockets on an industrial scale. Certainly not between, you know, we're reaching the end of 2023. So imagining that Blue Origin is going to have industrial pipelines of rockets launching every week. Seems unlikely when you're not here in 2023 launching at least, or they're not blowing up on the pad, if you know what I mean. Uh, some shareholders are also suing the Kuiper board because they won't move forward with other suppliers. So if you are an investor in Project Kuiper, you'd be saying, where's where's my timeline? Where's my activity? It should be noted that the uh, really the only other practical supplier is, of course, SpaceX, who is their primary competitor. So the assumption here, of course, is that Project Kuiper actually has satellites to launch. There's no evidence of that either. So if I'm an investor in Project Kuiper, I want to know that they have satellites and whether they actually work. So they should be launching them on SpaceX to at least prove the concept that they can build a competitor to Starlink. So that means, of course, that if Vodafone wants to partner with Project Kuiper, that feels like a really empty piece of marketing to me.
Yeah, it does. The fact that they didn't put out an announcement with SpaceX, I don't know what Project Kuiper or Jeff Bezos has done to, to make that happen, but uh, it is interesting that they're throwing in with Project Kuiper despite the fact that there are no satellites in space yet. Mm. Uh, and we'll see what happens with Blue Origin if they're able to get their uh, act together to get these satellites into, into orbit. I mean, the whole space industry is absolutely taking off, don't get me wrong. The, uh, SpaceX is now very close to testing its Starship, and the Starship is its massive. don't know the exact numbers, but I think... You know, the existing uh, Falcon 9s deliver about 25 tons to orbit. It varies, right, depending on the orbit that you're trying to achieve. If you've got to go into, you know, an Arctic orbit or a polar orbit, you've got to go a lot further so that the payload's a bit less. But the Starship is talking like 200, 300 tons. I hope I got those numbers right. Don't quote me, right? So it's it's a significant step up. So if you're going to build a network with thousands of satellites and those satellites are going to fall out of the sky because they've only got a limited amount of fuel, and you actually want them to fall out because you want to launch new ones with better technology. So you need to be lifting a lot of satellites up to the sky. And keep in mind that Starlink isn't just one layer of satellites of 2000. It's a second layer, like a leaf spine arrangement. And the second generation of satellites are there. <laughs> if you think that Project Kuiper has got two or three years before it starts getting volume launching of satellites, how far ahead is SpaceX going to be with Starlink? Yeah, Starlink already has over 10,000 satellites in orbit, so... Now, however, it has to be said that this week Musk revealed that he blocked Starlink in Crimea. Remember a year ago, they, they'd said, I've turned off all Ukrainian uh, Starlink terminals, and it was released from, I think it was Walter Isaacson, who had Elon's biography released this week or something. A new biography. The claim in the biography is that, yeah, Elon decided to turn off Starlink and prevent the Ukrainians from attacking the Russian Navy, right? <laughs> Believe it or not because he thought that a nuclear strike from Russia was imminent. And I think that's provoked a lot of people to start thinking about if he was a better citizen of the world, then the position that he would be in today would people would let him be a monopolist capitalist. But I suspect there's going to be significant moves now to try and restrict the capabilities of Starlink. But that said, the only other competitor at this stage is Boeing, and Boeing is right on the cusp of or showing signs of abandoning its space program because they just can't compete against SpaceX. The SLS program, which they've been trying to launch, the only rocket they've been trying to launch for years, is now costing them so much money. They're losing billions, like I mean billions. And they will only work with NASA on a cost plus 10% basis for future space projects. And NASA's just saying, well, we'll give it to SpaceX. And Boeing's basically going, sure, whatever. We're not interested. <laughs> so, you know, what happens next? If these smaller rocket companies can scale up, and that's a big if, uh, we'll see, but they're just not going to make a difference. They're not going to be able to shift hundreds of tons of satellites into orbit. Uh, they're going to be able to launch the odd small one for a nominal price somewhere underneath the Starlink price or underneath the SpaceX price, but they're, they're not really going to change the space industry for the foreseeable future. Yeah, on that Musk thing in the, the satellites in Crimea, I've got to say, uh, the US government, NATO governments, uh, I'm sure are rethinking their relationship with uh, SpaceX and Starlink, uh, given this, if it's true that he actually did decide unilaterally, just turn it off, uh, that the fact that uh, military systems would be so able to be disrupted by the material decisions of one person uh, has got to be uh, very cold water in the face uh, for, for these uh, governments. I would imagine that European and US governments are looking at Starlink and going like, does that mean that he could decide to shut us out if he decided he didn't like us or if he thought he was paying too much tax and he just like shut down our Starlink satellites? Yes, it's good. There's some very difficult conversations happening in, in the halls of government right now, I'm sure. Exactly. I mean, like Elon Musk strikes me as a person who is the least equipped to understand the consequences of a threatened, you know, Russian nuclear strike, because that's a deeply uncredible claim. Um, but, you know, I just think there's a whole problem going on here. So you're going to have a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of ructions around this in the future.
right, uh, we're going to finish with an obituary for WordPad. Uh, that's a free word processor from Microsoft, and now end of life. WordPad uh, was meant for viewing and editing RTF or rich text files. It's been bundled with Windows all the way back to Windows 95. Uh, according to the blog, Therat, uh, WordPad will be removed in a future release of Windows. Uh, and Greg, you raised this because I guess uh, despite your distaste for Microsoft, you were a WordPad user. Notepad's still around. Yes, not Notepad. Notepad is the plain text. WordPad is, is RTF. Yeah. Yes. The thing to note here is that back in the era of Windows 95, Windows cost something in the order of 200 to $300 a copy. And then to buy Microsoft Word could easily cost somewhere between 350 to $700 to buy the word processor. So if you've just coughed up uh, you know, a couple of thousand dollars for a, a PC, and then you've put a Windows license on top of that, bought a mouse in the days of mice when they cost $199. We're talking uh, mid to late 90s, folks, just to give you a context here. Yeah. So WordPad actually got used much more than people know. But the rich text format has really fallen out of favor. I don't see people writing in RTF too much yeah. these days. Everybody seems to just sort of defaulted to writing in uh, plain text. Uh, most of the nerds write in plain text and everybody else writes in pages or doc format. Uh, now that Office, you know, you can buy a Microsoft Office suite for $39.99 for lifetime. I've noticed that Microsoft's basically put a zero value on Microsoft Office. So, I mean, for even at $40, it's still too expensive, as my opinion. But I remember the days when Microsoft Office was retail price was $17.99. You could buy it heavily discounted at $12.99 or $11.99 for Microsoft Office. So that is the days when WordPad was a thing. And just maybe note that. Yeah, well, it was the cheap option when you wanted to save money and you needed to because things were so much more expensive then. Well, things are still pretty expensive. But yeah, yeah, and you know, you, it was fine. You could type stuff in there and you could go print and it would print out on your dot matrix printer. If you with the fold That's paper right. with the edges you had to peel off, yes, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, old days. all right. Well, we've poured one out for WordPad. Uh, that does wrap up uh, our show. Greg, where can folks get more from you online? Still on the Twitters, so I'm still spending more time over on LinkedIn. So, if you want to try and find me over there, do that. Uh, I'm Drew Connery Murray. I'm blogging on packetpushers.net. I'm abandoning Twitter, but I am now on Blue Sky. It's uh, at drewcm.bsky.social. If you happen to be on there, I'd love to follow you. Uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of Network Break. If you like the show, leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts, or you can catch us on Spotify or share a link with your colleagues. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>